are back with another episode of the only podcast for medical students and residents to learn what it means to be a provider directly from those who are practicing their career success every day. This episode is proudly brought to you by Provider First Recruiting. My name is Tyler, and today I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Mariam Abakar. Dr. Abakar is a compassionate and dedicated psychiatrist with a mission to provide excuse me, holistic and integrative mental health care. She obtained her medical education from Ohio State University and Ohio University at Cleveland Clinic, followed by residency training at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. Dr. Abakar furthered her expertise with two fellowships at Harvard Medical School, one in child adolescence and another in consult liaison psychiatry, which we're definitely going to look forward to hearing more about. She's passionate about serving college students and their families. Dr. Abakar understands the unique challenges of this demographic. She offers a safe and nurturing space where clients feel heard, validated, and empowered to navigate their mental health journey. With expertise in various therapeutic modalities, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR, and psychodynamic psychotherapy, Dr. Abakar trails tailors her approach to meet each client's individual needs. Her integrative approach incorporates emotional and social intelligence, training, trauma-informed care, and behavior regulation skills. Dr. Abakar, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that is a very impressive pedigree background training, and I'm really excited to hear more about your career success, through your practice, how you've built yourself up to be uh, prepared to you know, go through two fellowships at Harvard. I think we have a lot of really great stuff to cover. Thank you so much, Tyler. It is a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So why don't we start with asking the question we'd like to start by asking everyone, which is what made you choose medicine in this particular area of practice? Absolutely. That's a great question. I chose medicine because I wanted to pursue a career of service, and I found no better place to do so than in healthcare, honestly. And I chose medicine in particular because I wanted to serve as a leader in the healthcare sphere, I, as I wanted to have a bit of an impact. I had originally gone into Ohio State University as a pre-nursing student, um, but then <laughs> to the uh, uh, curiosity of my family, I mentioned, I said, I actually want to take organic chemistry <laughs> and I actually want to learn about the intricacies of biomedical sciences so that I could maybe one day pursue research. Uh, and then I chose psychiatry uh, within medicine uh, because as I was on my rotations and even while I was a, back when we used to call them candy stripers and I used to volunteer, um, I found that many dis diseases were, you know, began or were contributed by psychosocial issues. And, you know, the word disease comes from this word of dis-ease, right? Dis-ease of the body or the brain. And I found that a lot of, you know, scientists show that a, some of the greatest, you know, uh, contributors to cancer, hypertension, inflammation, et cetera, is stress and stressful yeah. situations. And only, you know, there's only a, somewhat of a, of a clear ideology of how that di directly affects health. And I, I remember, um, so I, you know, I really wanted to start with the root cause of disease by addressing the psycho, social, socio, and spiritual issues that people experience on a daily basis. Um, I, I had re recalled an incident where I was just volunteering at Ross Hart Hospital, um, hospital sorry, uh, over at uh, Ohio State when I was a volunteer uh, as a pre-medical student. Um, and I realized there was a patient 
that was 18 years old, had an eating disorder and severe depression and could not get herself out of bed. It was that severe, unfortunately. Yet very close nearby, there was another patient who was in his 60s, who had a leg amputation due to cardiovascular disease, but was joking around with physical therapy and occupational therapy and was getting up out of his chair. And I realized the power of the mind and, yeah. and, and the importance of making sure that that space is sacred and, and is, uh, is preserved. And additionally, um, I also had a personal tragedy that occurred. Uh, one of my relatives, unfortunately, had committed suicide. And I saw how the community, yeah, responded to it. And, um, you know, to my dismay, it wasn't very well received. They didn't really fully understand that this is a medical illness, that this is something that uh, truly, you know, there is a biochemical component to it. And so I I made sure that uh, I I wanted to really become an advocate to raise awareness for for mental health. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I think as we look at, and one of the reasons I really was looking forward to today's episode is as we look at the landscape ahead of all of us, right? We have so much access to information. We have so much access to other people's um, curated lifestyles. And I think it does take a huge toll. I think a lot of people can relate to some of the things you're saying and the importance of holding our minds, our mental health sacred. So um, yeah, I think that's a really great Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's especially in this post-COVID era, right? It's yeah. As a collective society, you really need to highlight the importance of mental health uh, for the overall functioning of our society. Yeah, and I think that's a, another really great point that when we think of it as collective, right? A lot of times, mental health can be so isolating because we think it's our issue; it's what we have to deal with. But I really exactly. like the idea that it's collective and that we're all, you know, we're kind of all in this together. And if my mental health can be improved by helping your mental health and vice versa, or if we can all be aware of, you know, where people just are. I think there's that saying, uh, you know, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along the lines <laughs> of, uh, you know, don't uh, be careful how you speak to some people because you have no idea what journey they're on. So um, absolutely, yeah, it kind of falls all within that community of understanding. Absolutely. There's a really cool video for the, for the listeners out there that Cleveland Clinic came out with that actually discusses the concept of empathy. And it shows a lot of patients um, that, you know, are going through uh, various things. And it's called Empathy, the Human Connection to Patient Care, and it's on YouTube. And it discusses essentially like, you know, one patient is, you know, had just recently heard that his wife is terminally ill. Another, another physician is a resident that just found out he is going to be a dad. Another individual is a patient who just went through a divorce. And like, you, you just don't know what everyone is going through on a person on their, their personal struggle and their personal journey. And so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's also known as the, the heart of compassion. That's also another name for it that was uh, published in 2013. So that's, that was one of the places that I had done my training. And so I'm very glad to see Cleveland Clinic coming up with these types of videos to really emphasize the importance of human connection and empathy. Yeah. And you know what I'll do? I'll, um, I'll uh, link that video in the description to this episode. So anybody wants to take a look at that, they can. That's great. Yeah. So we're looking, you know, and I figured out why you wanted to be a doctor and now you're ready. What was the match process like? What was it like for you to match in this specialty? Yeah. So interestingly enough, at the time I was very interested in psychiatry. However, I was thinking to myself, would I be a better primary care physician? Would I be a better physical medicine and rehab physician? Because I had some interests in 
holistic care, right? Mm. And so in the match process, I had actually considered other specialties, but I had ranked psychiatry highly. I had ranked them as my number one. Um, and uh, I was genuinely, you know, I had picked programs based on what they would offer me. Um, I know we'll go into this here, here later in terms of advice mm -hmm. for those preparing for the match. But, um, you know, I had picked places that I felt like would really, um, you know, treat me as family. Mm -hmm. And um, once I matched into psychiatry, however, uh, I was very thrilled. And it has been really, really fulfilling. I mean, I had been historically told that I'm a very, quote, deep person. And that desire for, for depth and meaningful connection really translates very well in the field of psychiatry where my daily mm -hmm. goals include helping others uh, to better understand and heal themselves and to improve their functionality and how they can overall uh, improve in their interactions with the world around them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And I'm yeah excited to hear a little bit more about your advice for that because it's Something I think any medical student who's looking forward to it down the road or any resident who's about to undertake it and hope to, you know, get their match, um, they're going to be, you know, interested to sort of hear your perspective. Absolutely. So, yeah, it can be a very nerve wracking experience. You know, it can be a very nerve wracking experience. It's almost like all your eggs are sort of in one basket. At least it feels that way. Um, but uh, I hope that we can provide them with some feedback that will really help the, the listeners today. Yeah, and I've known, I've worked with a lot of medical students who've had to match. I've known a lot of them as friends and, and family and stuff. And so um, to say it's a nerve-wracking experience, I think anyone out there listening is probably saying, you know, yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> um, right. So what is your advice then? So when we look at what it's like, I mean, imagine going back to when you were putting all your eggs in one basket, you were ranking your thought, your choices, and you're waiting for that, you know, crowded room to get the envelope saying, you know, that you made it, uh, well, what advice would you have for those who are preparing for that? Absolutely. I would say, so looking back, I created an Excel sheet of my priorities in terms of uh, looking for a residency program. And I then had this other area of the X factor, you know, did this mm -hmm. program feel, did my gut instinct tell me that this would be a good training program where I would have a good, uh, solid uh, training and where I would be treated as family. And that's the advice that I have is that look for residency programs that treat you as a person because they're going to be your quote work family for potentially, potentially the most arduous three plus years of your life, depending upon yeah. which specialty you pick. Right. And so inquire about the culture, you know, rank the programs that you truly had a good feeling about very highly. And I will say this, and I can't stress this enough, even though I did complete fellowships at Harvard towards the, towards the end of my training, you know, in residency, I did not focus on the name. And please do not, do not, if I may give some unsolicited advice, mm -hmm. do not give, you know, do not focus just on the name. Yes, if there's a program that you feel has a wonderful culture and has a great name, that is that is the cherry on top, you know? But the more yeah. grounded, something I learned in my training is that the more grounded you are in residency, or at least the more grounded I was in residency, the better I was able to master my skills as a future psychiatrist. And the, that allowed for me to grow into my greatest potential as a physician, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized that no matter wherever you go, there you are. And if you are passionate, right, about your specialty, 
you will be successful wherever you go because patients will truly flock to you, you know? And so yeah. I, I would say, you know, place, you know, rank highly those places that will train you um, in, 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 a, in a comprehensive, holistic fashion that care about life, work-life balance and a place that can feel like home for a few years. Um, also, you know, inquire if they're a part of a union. You know, now there's uh, yeah. CIR, which is the Committee for Interns and Residents. We can also perhaps put that link for them because that's an excellent resource. It's sweeping yeah. the nation. And I don't know if you know about this, Tyler, but this, yeah. um, oh my gosh. Oh, oh, big, this is a big deal. So yeah. C CIR, Committee for Interns and Residents. And uh, it is a program, so they can just Google this. Um, the website is CIRSEIU.org, CIRSEIU.org. Um, and it is the Committee for Interns and Residents that is essentially um, focusing on benefits, focusing on advocate, advocacy, focusing on holistic management of your well-being as you're going through residency and fellowship training. Wow. So it is a, 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 a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful website to look at because you can um, figure out if, if, you know, this program, if your program is a part of this union, then you have rights, you have more rights and you're, you're as strong as the group is, you know, they're representing now over 32,000 house staff according wow. to their website. Yeah. And uh, so they, their mission is to unite and empower resident physicians to have a stronger voice within their hospitals. And so as they're growing, their collective voice to advocate for cost-effective, high-quality healthcare for all is also increasing. So I would say that, um, you know, they, they also provide disability insurance. They provide uh, reproductive and racial justice. They discuss gun violence and public health. Um, and most importantly is what we to discuss the resident well-being. So, you know, ask, ask these programs um, or even just do your own research if, if you don't feel comfortable asking them, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, directly. Feel free to look it up and see if that particular program is a part of CIR. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I will definitely link that in here as well. Um, I'm imagining a lot of providers who are already practicing probably wishing they had CIR back in the day. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I wished I had CIR uh, during my first uh, fellowship program where we can go into this, but uh, I mean, I, I developed COVID. I then developed, oh. I got sick with COVID, developed long COVID, was actually acutely disabled for a Whoa. period of time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was a really tough time. And I wish I had had CIR at the time because they really help advocate for you, especially when, you know, poop hits the fan. And yeah. <laughs> you don't necessarily know how to go about it until you're, until you are faced with that experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I was going to say, you know, I think all the conversations we've had here on the podcast and I've had in work uh, and working with uh, providers across the field, it's, it's definitely a residency was an experience. It's a, a what do they call that? A, sort of a, a character event in their life. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I'm sure they would have loved to have had that, but, what was residency like for you? I mean, with or without CIR, what was the process like? What was it sort of day to day yeah. for you? Yeah. So at the time there was no CIR and thankfully I was so blessed and so lucky 
that I was in a program for residency that was very much so focused on our well-being, focused on our teaching and our learning, focused on treating us as junior attendings. We call that like um, essentially trying to train you to become an attending where they want to ask you, the supervisors will ask you, what is your opinion? You know, what do you want to do with this patient? And then we can kind of discuss you know, options. So residency for me, the first year in psychiatry, you do a lot of different rotations. So you do neurology, you do addiction medicine, you do internal medicine, you may, you do emergency medicine. So you're with the other specialties. So you're learning, still learning more of your medical skills, but it's within a certain branch of things that are pertinent to psychiatry, because you will see patients that come in through the ED. You will see patients that are also on the neurology floor. You will see patients that are also admitted medically, right? So that was my first year and we did have call. We had 24 hour call, but we had a post-call day. Um, and we also had short call, which was essentially you would, um, uh, we, we would, you know, cover uh, just until about, you know, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. on that day. Um, and, you know, we would go into work the next morning, but it was still within that um, ACGME recommendation of having at least eight hours or eight to 12 hours off. I forget what the exact number was, but it was still within the ACGME requirements. And the second year was where I learned the most psychiatry and inpatient psychiatry, where we did consult liaison psychiatry, which um, just to kind of define that, that's essentially used to be called psychosomatic medicine. It's essentially taking care of patients who are medically ill that also happen to have another psychiatric comorbidity. So let's say you've got somebody with brain mets, right? They've got breast cancer, it metastasized to the brain, they're now developing hallucinations. Well, mm. you'd manage that patient differently than if they just showed up to the ED with hallucinations, didn't have a medical illness. That's a primary psychosis versus a secondary psychosis that presents as a result of a medical condition, right? Yeah. So, so that was consult liaison psychiatry. We did that. I was teaching interns, teaching medical students. Um, I was, you know, the secondhand person to the chair that was the supervisor of CL. All of us as second years, we would take turns, so we would rotate. And then we also did inpatient psychiatry, where we were on the inpatient psychiatric unit, where we would see some pretty seriously mentally ill patients, those who had, let's say, longstanding schizophrenia, acute mania, acute psychosis, really bad neurovegetative depression that where they couldn't get out of bed and required ECT. We did actually do electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. It's not as terrible. It's not, it's not like the movie. Uh, what is it? Uh, something, the cuckoo's nest. I forget what it's called. Uh, one flight over the cuckoo's nest. I think, one yeah. flight over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like that at all. There's anesthesia. You're very comfortable. You're asleep. It's, it takes less than two minutes. Um, but it's extremely effective. Um, but of course, I don't recommend ECT just for any patient, you know, yeah, of yeah. course, it's something that's a, you know, very, very deliberate, it takes a lot of time to really consider whether or not that would be the choice for that individual. But uh, so we did inpatient psychiatry, we would really kind of, you know, uh, see the day to day, um, uh, how their improvements are and truly, it's miraculous how somebody can walk in with poor insight and judgment, very vulnerable because of their mental illness. And just with a medication change over the course of five to seven days of an inpatient hospitalization can absolutely change course and and return back to themselves. It's, it's yeah. really amazing. Um, and then we would also do um, 
In addition to inpatient, we did child psychiatry. So I was able to see some young kiddos, which lit up my world. And that was one of the yeah. reasons why I pursued child psych. Oh gosh, they are just the cutest thing, waking them up in the morning, you know, playing with them, really helping to become their, you know, their confidant and to be a, a resource for them to really assist them especially if they're going through a lot of social stressors, you know, issues with mom and dad or issues in the home or issues at school, it could really change the trajectory of an entire person's life, just, you know, in, intervening at a much younger age. So um, that was very, very interesting. Um, and then we did also, like I mentioned, the first year, we did more addiction medicine our second year and treated dual diagnosis patients, we call them in the psych world, which are patients who also have substance use disorders. So let's say alcoholism or cocaine mm -hmm. use disorder, or they're, or they're addicted to opiates. So we would really see a huge turnaround just with medication changes and helping them with acute detox or acute withdrawal Um or detoxing from withdrawal, sorry. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, we would really uh, see a huge and significant improvement. In, and, and I realized that a lot of patients that do have substance use disorders, also, they, they have some kind of underlying condition, you know, maybe they're self-treating with alcohol, they're trying to treat their own anxiety with alcohol, mm -hmm. or let's say they're, they're, you know, they're grieving, and they've got major depressive disorder, what started off as a normal bereavement is now prolonged grief disorder, right? And they're utilizing opiates to give them that high because they can't stand the pain of having lost a loved one, right? So yeah. that was really interesting to, to, to kind of take a look at what are the underlying psychiatric or psychological underpinnings of substance use disorder. And then our third year, again, our second year, we also had more call and things like that. It was very rigorous. Um, but still within ACGME guidelines. And um, the third year was all outpatient. Third and fourth year, all outpatient. Um, we had our own clinic. I had my own office, which was great. Not every program has that, but I did. I got to spruce it up. I got to put um, uh, um, really good ambiance and lighting and calm, <laughs> soft music. And, nice. and yeah, and I had a plethora of books for my patients so that they could reference and return. Um, I had a nice little couch and uh, a few chairs and uh, my own desk. And I got to put up these, you know, positive um, signs and things of that nature and kind of make it my own space so that when a patient comes in, they really feel that it's an experience, that they're really getting a, a certain kind of treatment. Um, and I would do therapy with them. There were even times when with adults, I would do play therapy or kind of role play therapy where we would kind of go back to when they were a child and let's say they had some issues in their adolescence or in their childhood. And we would, I would have them bring in games and things that they used to play when they were younger. And we would actually kind of, you know, play, sorry, that game, board games or play guns and, or um, uh, what is it? Something in dragons. Um, Dungeons and dragons. Uh, Dungeons and dragons. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, as you can tell, I'm not an avid player, but they would teach yeah. me and they would be patient with me. <laughs> and, uh, and that was really neat, you know, because I got to see, I, I told them, you know, fall into the role. It's okay. There's nothing that's too silly. Let's actually get into it and let's act, address the child you or that adolescent you. And I would provide them with affirmations. I would do inner child guided imagery, you know, where, which is essentially like mm -hmm. leading them back, you know, into their childhood through a meditative practice. And, you know, whether it's holding their hand or giving them space or having them hug a pillow or having them hug 
a stuffed animal that means something to them or meant something to them when they were a kid. And really just kind of having the adult them uh, just communicate with their child, uh, with their with their inner child. And that, I tell you what, Tyler, that was powerful. I had so many patients yeah. that were in tears, you know, um, because it was just so powerful. And they were able, it was, they would tell me it feels like a hug, like a secure blanket, you know, where, where they could kind of reassure themselves um, reassure their child self uh, through their adult self that it's going to be okay. Because oftentimes there have been rifts in their childhood development um, for whatever reason that may have prevented yeah. them from having, you know, a, a, a full normal development. So that was the third and fourth year. Um, so I really enjoyed my time in residency. Yes, it was rigorous. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, I learned a lot. Uh, yes, it was physically taxing, but I found my passion. And so I felt I was learning and mastering my skills or, or working towards mastering my skills as a future psychiatrist, you know? Um, yeah. And I think the, the program really helped us in tr training us to serve as, as junior attendings. So that way we could assume that role of, and have that confidence to become um you know, advocates for our patients. Yeah, <clears throat> it sounds like it was a really diverse uh, just experience overall. And I think whether that would lend to it because it was in psychiatry or not, you probably could speak to, but um, it sounds like you covered a lot of bases. And I actually have a very good friend who is a uh, child play therapist. And now I'm going to be suspicious every time he brings out Monopoly or another <laughs> game. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him if he has any hidden motives. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you say that, that it was so diverse because it was in psychiatry? Do you think that, or do you think that's the general experience in a, in a residency is it's going to be really diverse? Well, I, that's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to that one. I mean, I would yeah. say, I would say that particularly my program at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital right outside of Chicago was pretty diverse. I think that they do have, I mean, I know that they do have ACGME requirements where they have to have, you know, a certain months of neurology, certain months of child psychiatry, certain months of consult liaison psychiatry. But the cool thing about our program is that we really got immersed in each of those rotations because there are some programs out there that consider, you know, consults as like out, an outpatient consultation, when in reality, consult liaison on an inpatient level is very, very different. So, um, I think it really is program specific to some degree, but there are still some parameters that have to be met through the ACGME, the uh, American, um, I think, Collegiate of Graduate Medical Education. Um, and so, or consortium, I forget what the C stands for. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, but uh, I, I think that in other specialties, it really depends. I mean, if you go internal medicine or family medicine, yes, it's going to be diverse, where you'll do OB, you'll do pediatrics, ED, ICU, you know, where it is diverse. But um, I, I do actually want to bring up one thing, that there is a limitation in the diversity that uh, primary care physicians have in their residency training. And I'll ask you a question um, not to put you on the spot, but just to see kind of yeah. what's your perspective. But how many months of psychiatry do you think a primary care physician has uh, in their training, like a future family physician? Well, uh, if I had to guess based on my experience with residents uh, who had to go through rotations, I'd say probably 30 days. That's, that's super close. So medical students, 
get one month. So they get 30 days, they get one month. Mm -hmm. And in residency, they get zero unless oh. they choose to create an elective. Isn't that interesting? And 80% oh, 80% of our psychotropics are prescribed by primary care physicians. Wow. And so that's why one of the things that we're doing in our current fellowship program with the consult liaison, which we can discuss here further, but is something called primary care behavioral health integration, PCBHI, where we are collaborating with other primary care physicians as psychiatrists so that these patients that are presenting to the PCP who have a psychiatric complaint or develop a psychiatric condition can then, we can be consulted and see them, whether it's virtually mm -hmm. or in person, and then, and then provide our recommendations to the patient and to the PCP, and the PCP can then take um, ownership of what they choose to do based on our recommendations. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a huge need. So even though there is a diversity, I would say I would love to see more mental health being incorporated into residency programs. And I think that that's mm -hmm. actually happening. I think that they're working on that. Uh, but up, you know, to my knowledge, it's still pretty limited. Yeah. Would you say that, you know, wanting to have a more inclusive um, approach to mental health, especially when it comes to primary care, you know, you talked about, we talked about you having a fellowship, the dual fellowship, both in child adolescent psychology and the consult liaison psychology we've been talking about, or psychiatry we've been talking about. Do you, um, you know, is that why you chose to do those fellowships? Like what, what led you to do those particular fellowships? Yeah, absolutely. So I chose, so in residency, I found myself wanting to learn more about caring for psychiatric patients throughout the lifespan. I was really curious about how to best care for and prescribe medications for children and for, sorry, children and adolescents, yeah. um, as well as the acutely medically ill. And um, I really, like I mentioned earlier, I feel really drawn to the energy of kids. Um, and additionally, I found myself really curious and interested in cases where patients are experiencing psych symptoms as a result of or contributed by medical illness. So I have some examples. Uh, when I was actually, I took a break between fellowships and worked as an attending. So when I was an attending at a local hospital here outside of Boston, I actually, there was a patient who came in who was younger, who came in with new onset psychosis. So she was hallucinating, she was delusional. She was even so psychotic that she was something we call catatonic. Catatonia is the condition where somebody is just so, so psychotic that they actually become mute. They can become mute. They can wow. have severe psychomotor retardation, we call it. So the, the, the motor movements are re retarded, right? They are, they are slowed, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, she was just not with it at all. She was not oriented. She was also dealing with delirium which is an encephalopathy, which essentially means there's something medical going on. And I noticed that when we treated the catatonia with what we would usually clear it up, it wasn't clearing. So that gave me an indication that there was, even though she was on the psych floor, something might've been missed medically that we didn't know about. So I got yeah. a little bit more history and found out that she had had a history of PCOS and all of that. And then I thought of something like just, you know, a light bulb you know, went off and I said, what if she's got an ovarian teratoma that's contributing to neuroendocrine signaling that's causing an autoimmune encephalitis? All those big words just mean yeah. there can be a, a mass in the ovaries that is a specific type called a teratoma that has, it can have teeth in it and hair in it. Like it's this ball of all of these different types of tissues that your wow. body would normally grow. Oh yeah, you can look it up. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. I probably and won't, it, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> 
I know it's it's pretty it's pretty gross, um, and um, it releases these signals that go to the that affect the brain, and the brain literally becomes inflamed. The brain mm -hmm. is kind of on fire, shall we say? And there's this really cool um, really cool movie actually about autoimmune encephalitis called Brain on Fire. Mm. And uh, we can also link that if you'd like, but it's about autoimmune encephalitis. It was uh, in 2018 and about this uh, girl who actually was thought to be mad, but in reality, they found out she had had an autoimmune encephalitis. And I'm not ruining the ending because it's, it's all, you know, it's, it, you kind of know about that, but, but it's, it's just really, really neat. And yeah. so in any case, um, you know, uh, so I had an interest, I, I, I you know, I, I did an ultrasound of the ovaries or of the uh, uterus, uh, the, uh, the pelvis and the abdomen. And um, to the dismay of the OBGYN, they were like, this is just, you know, she was like, this is just going to be so rare. I mean, I don't know if we should do it. And I just yeah. said, you know what, screw it. I'm the primary uh, psychiatrist. She's on, you know, the patient is on the psych unit. I'm the primary physician. Let me just go ahead and do it. And we found an ovarian teratoma. And the neurologist oh. was immediately, immediately came in, high fived me, was like, dude, we found it. And she immediately was sent to another hospital. It was surgically excised and removed. And she came back within a week. She was back to her senses. Wow. That's Isn't that amazing? So yeah. that's the kind of stuff we do on consult liaison psychiatry. I mean, that's like an extreme example. That was actually found on inpatient, but this would be a typical CL patient, right? Um, somebody who's got a medical condition that's contributing to their psychiatric uh, symptoms. Um, I've got I've got a plethora of other examples. You know, somebody who developed nihilistic delusions, believing she was dead. She had lupus. She was on wow. dialysis, and you know, and and she thought she was dead. You know, um, and uh, once that cleared, once we did the dialysis, um, she had an injury to her kidneys, so the medications weren't weren't um, appropriately oh, yeah. clearing. So she developed these, we've called it Cotard's delusions or nihilistic delusions of believing she was dead, but she cleared up, which is amazing. And I think that's why I like CL. Uh, and that, I think that's why I like child now that I'm reflecting on it is that there's yeah. hope. There's hope for treatment, more, more hope. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and lastly, I had a, an interesting case, a child that had long COVID that developed a mass inflammatory lesion in her brain. And she presented with, again, new onset psychosis and suicidal thoughts. I mean, she was really young. And um, finally, when we addressed the lesion and, and the trauma, she began to heal and made an improvement, but it took a year for her <clears throat> because we couldn't necessarily remove it. Um, but, it but she was able to, to, to get treated. So wow. it required some neural oncology and um, you know, other, other specialists. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I, I really like, you know, because it's integrative and it's, it's for looking at it from a holistic perspective and really trying to get to the root of the problem. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, I think that's incredibly fascinating and it speaks to probably why it's so diverse. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, we started this conversation talking about what it was like to, why you chose medicine, why psychiatry, why, you know, what the match process and residency was like. And so now I wonder if you, reflect back on all of that how has your your idea of career success changed since residency yeah i guess my idea today of of success has changed since residency in the sense that i was more focused on academia prior to uh to fellowship but actually it wasn't necessarily fellowship but it was more so what happened in fellowship when i recovered from long covid 
that I'm now more focused on work-life balance and finding a career niche that not only addresses my clinical interests, but also allows for self-care. So yeah. I've been looking at private practice. I've been looking at, uh, you know, having, you know, being able to work in academia part-time and then also being able to have my own kind of practice on the side. Again, I'm still, you know, completing this last fellowship here. So it, you know, it may take a little bit of time, but I did join recently a group practice. So a little shout out to the college psychiatrist. So if there are any, any medical students or college students that are really seeking some help with their own mental health in a private kind of confidential manner, feel free to go to the collegepsychiatrist.com and um you know we'd be happy to see you wonderful yeah um yeah i think it's great that you have those resources and i'll link that as well the collegepsychiatrist.com yeah I'm, I'm so sorry it's actually collegepsychiatrist.com i misspoke collegepsychiatrist.com okay. yeah awesome um so what we we're talking about you know practicing and you're to finish up your fellowship so what what's what's a good day for you and your practice you know, interestingly enough, a good, a good day in practice for me is one where I'm stumped. And that, you know, when a patient really, when there's a case that's, you know, is, is interesting, it gets me to research and learn and grow, and then also have the opportunity to teach the other, you know, residents and interns. Um, so I, I can recall a, a recent example of this where we had a patient who came in and um, primary care was like, mm, something is up with this patient. You know, she's really medically ill, but she's laughing and then crying and then laughing spontaneously and then spontaneously crying. This seems like this is a psych issue. So they thought maybe yeah. she was manic, but she actually did not fit the criteria for mania. It actually is something that we call in the medical world a pseudo balbar affect, which is where somebody is, you know, their um, that area of the brain is affected. Um, and causes their affect or their their the way that we perceive their mood to change rapidly and spontaneously between crying and laughing. And we were able to consult neurology and we were able to figure out that it was in fact a lithium toxicity that was causing a, a pseudobalbar affect. And um, at one point we thought it was maybe pseudobalbar palsy. Palsy is like uh, muscle weakness because she was mm -hmm. also complaining of muscle weakness and muscle pain and things of that nature, neuropathic pain. So that was a really neat case, you know, and it stumped me for a little bit. I was like, wait, this is pseudobalbar affect. What could be causing this? Wow. Uh, you know, so that was really neat. Um, and, uh, you know, something that just gets my gears turning, you know, something that really gets me to to learn, to, 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 again, I will say to research, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I would say that's, that's a good day. Um, from like a typical day, um, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'll chart review on our patients. I will, um, you know, communicate with the team or, you know, over whether it's Zoom or Google Meet or over the phone and kind of discuss what the day looks like. Then I'll go to the hospital, I'll see my patients, I'll prep my notes, then I'll communicate with the attending and the rest of the team. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll complete, you know, we'll communicate with the primary care team and we'll discuss our plans and, uh, then we'll wrap it up. You know, um, I also have clinic, um, a couple times a week. So I get to see those patients in that PCBHI program that we talked about where we integrate with primary yeah. care. And so I get to see patients that are usually, you know, seeing a primary care physician, but are also looking for a psychiatric consultation. Um, and, you know, I, um, I'm also, you know, studying for my boards right now and, um, and also doing an integrative psychiatry fellowship. 
uh, another yeah. fellowship <laughs> where yeah. I'm learning, um, I'm learning integrative approaches and how to treat and how to treat psychiatric conditions without medication. So like, let's say supplements and, um, other types of treatments, uh, therapies, um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's, you know, like I mentioned supplements or whether it's different forms of psychotherapies, uh, but how to appropriately dose those supplements and what are, what, which ones are safe and which aren't, what's the literature saying about them, you know, really trying to reincorporate lifestyle changes into helping those with mental health uh, issues. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to what you talked about before about, you know, wanting to have um, you called it a career of service and wanting to, to do that. I think everything that you're talking about, all the fellowships you've undertaken really ensure that you can be of service to the largest number of people possible. And I imagine that has to be a big motivation for anyone who's going not only into healthcare, but maybe specifically psychiatry um, because, you know, you, you really have to be able to meet people where they are. And it sounds like you're well-prepared for that. So um, <laughs> trying to be yeah, yeah, <laughs> trying. We're all, we're all trying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As we look at that, so, you know, that preparation you've done, um, you're, you're really involved in, I was really impressed when we first talked uh, about doing the podcast episode, you're really involved in your community and in volunteering, and I believe you have a really big um, passion for helping those who've been victims of sex, excuse me, sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit, you know, talk a little bit more about your commitment to your community, that particular cause, uh, just in general, um, how that's preparing you to be the psychiatrist that you're going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was working in the Chicagoland area, we actually had a patient that came in that had marks on her wrists and her neck and her ankles that looked like she was roped up. Wow. And um, she was very withdrawn, looking outside of the window of the room, just laying down, looking kind of gaunt. And I came up to her and she was, again, didn't really want to discuss anything, but I noticed something very interesting when my, when my male counterpart and supervisor came into the room, her face got really red and it was out of fear. She got very, very fearful. Mm. And I immediately thought to myself, gosh, I think this patient has been subjected to a form of abuse potentially by by a male or somebody who represents a male or something, right? Yeah. And so I remember I extended my hand and I asked her for permission to hold her hand and she said yes. And she later then told me that there, she had in fact been gang raped at that time Ugh. under you know sex trafficking uh, and that she said, these guys had done what they had done without permission and here you were a female, um, asking me for permission to just simply hold my hand and that's when i knew that i could trust you oh and isn't that interesting like boundary yeah. setting healthy boundary setting just modeling that kind of behavior that was a patient that i will never forget ever forget you know she changed my life because she taught me so much about trafficking i had no idea how pervasive it is especially in the chicagoland area and in the united states yeah. Um, I did not realize that a young woman, a seven-year-old, can be trafficked. Can you believe? I mean, let me ask you, no. I guess, I guess, yeah. like how many times do you think a seven-year-old can be trafficked in a matter of 24 hours? I can't. Honestly, 
it makes me uncomfortable to even think about that question. Right. So I, I hope it's very little, but I imagine can, it's probably astonishing how often. It's astonishing. It's a study show. It can actually be up to 20 to 30 times in a 24 oh. hour period. Oh, and I don't know how that's even physically and biologically possible for a seven year old. And yeah. so I had no idea how terrible this is. And, you know, we, we, we look at, you know, Jeffrey um, Epstein, you know, there's a documentary out on Netflix and um, which is really cool to actually watch because you get to kind of see um, his narcissist, you know, the, some of the traits of narcissism that he, that he had um, and sort of how, you know, his female counterpart would, would lure them in because, you know, she would seem to be trustworthy um, and how there's this little black book with a bunch of politicians that, um, not to get too political here, but um, yeah. that we're also um, utilizing those quote services and yeah. how that's used as blackmail now um, where, you know, they can then have some sort of political pull. Uh, in any case, this goes much, this is much larger than just medicine. And I, I guess I'll just keep it to strict, strictly to medicine. But, um, you know, some of my passions are to continue to advocate for the education of physicians so that they can understand the signs and symptoms of what to expect in a patient that has been trafficked. Because there are some studies that show up to like 65 to sometimes 80% of patients that are in the life that are actively being trafficked are seen by a, by a provider, a healthcare provider, but are not appropriately identified as being trafficked because they won't really up, up and tell you because oftentimes they're so gaslit. They don't even realize yeah. that they're being, that they're being trafficked, right? They just see it yeah. as, a, as a service or something like that. And they're promised all of these things and they don't receive payment, right? Otherwise that would be prostitution, right? Yeah. Um, they don't receive payment. They are abused. They, they oftentimes have these romantic fantasies with their quote daddies or their you know, the, the individual who is, you know, quote, pimping them out, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, I found it to be just astonishing all that I learned from that particular case. I then took that and um, uh, presented at the International Academy for Law and Mental Health. And I spoke with uh, judges and attorneys and other physicians and other psychiatrists, other mental health providers, um, other academics about the signs and symptoms of sex trafficking uh, uh, and, and patients who are being trafficked. And that was very fulfilling. I started to work with the American Psychiatric Association as well, um, you know, looking at, looking at what we can do to help educate other psychiatrists. And so we worked on a toolkit as well to help assist them. Oh, wow. I believe it's somewhere online with the APA. Unfortunately, I got sick, and so I couldn't finish that project, but I think the rest of the team did. Um, um, and so, you know, I, I'm very passionate about this cause, and I, I just think it's one of the most, one of the most horrendous, horrendous yeah. things that is happening in today's world. And that's <clears throat> really a part of my um, interest. And I, I want to say there's a really good program called heal trafficking h-e-a-l trafficking um there's a protocol toolkit that i'm uh, um, that i've you know i've been a part of the heal um, community and that that can be something that um, uh, other providers or medical students can take a look at and if anybody is you know i i, I doubt this but if anybody is listening and is being trafficked i mean the best thing to do is to it's to reach out to somebody that you trust and to even call the hotline anonymously. 
um, and to discuss your case without telling them your name, without telling them identifiers. You can just kind of start slow, you know, but talk to somebody that you trust. They don't have to, they, somebody that won't necessarily report it because that can cause other issues. It can be detrimental to their life if it's reported because sometimes certain you know, I know the majority of officers are, 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 are abiding by the law, but some of them are bought out and aren't yeah. necessarily abiding by the law. And so they can actually warn those that are uh, trafficking others um, that there has been a report made against them. Yeah. So that can actually put the, the young child's uh, or young female's life at, at, at risk. So there has to be a very, very, there has to be a great sensitivity in addressing these issues. Um, so it's something that I had to take a pause from because it kind of caused me to have vicarious like trauma, you yeah. know, where the, the trauma of kind of hearing of all these stories, <clears throat> hearing about all these stories. And so I needed to take a pause, especially when I got sick as well. You know, I, um, I was, uh, uh, you know, genuinely needed a, a bit of a, a break to self-care, but I hope to return to it because I, I can't stand to see it continue. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're doing that. I'm grateful as I know there's a, a big community of people who are invested in, in, in catching that, stopping it, and, and then most importantly, helping those victims um, find peace and, and being at ease and contentment in their life again. So, <clears throat> excuse me, grateful that you're doing that and so many other people are as well. Um, we've had such a great conversation and I, um, I often say, you know, we might uh, come up with questions on the fly, but we didn't have to do that because uh, your knowledge sharing and, and thought leadership on all of this has been really, really great. Um, before you. we go, though, before we, uh, I don't necessarily want to end on the note uh, that we were talking about. So I'm going to ask you four really quick uh, rapid fire questions. Answer the first thing that pops off the top of your head. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So if you were not uh, going to be a psychiatrist or you didn't go to medical school, what would you have done? I would be a musician. I love singing. Oh, nice. Okay. What kind of, what genre? Oh, I love R&B. I love soul. Nice. Love soul. Mm -hmm. All right. Aretha Franklin, big fan. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Damn. If you haven't seen her performance at the Kennedy Center honors Obama, uh, when Obama was there, uh, she was honoring Carol King. Um, it's it's incredible. I watch it anytime I need to pick me up. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, definitely. All right. So, favorite way to self care? Meditation and prayer. Oh, okay, nice. Uh, what TV show are you binging or watching right now? Oh my gosh! Most recently, I just finished binge watching Hannibal Lecter, the right. series. And uh, my goodness, that was so disturbing. And he's a psychiatrist, supposedly, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it was just so disturbingly thrilling and addictive, uh, just looking at how warped his mind was. Um, and yeah. I thought that was really interesting just to kind of study the mind or, you know, I know it's fictional, but just, you know, looking at the mind of, of a... Uh, uh, of, of such a serial killer, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and looking at, you know, Will's, you know, his counterpart, Will, who was sort of the, you know, the, the, uh, the protagonist and um, the empathy, uh, the empathizer, you know, the total opposite, shall we say. Yeah. Well, so I'm, that was really interesting. Yeah. And we talked about this uh, before. And so I'm really excited. Uh, I shared that Thomas Harris, the writer of creator of Hannibal Lecter is one of my favorite authors. If you know me, you know, I love true crime. So hopefully that doesn't worry anybody out, but um, I'm excited. <laughs> you said you hadn't seen Silence of the Lambs. And so I'm excited for you to see the movies. Uh, I know. I'm surprised. Cool. I'm surprised I haven't seen them. I, you know, I'm going to have to. 
yeah, I think you'll like them. Um, I guess it was all that studying in medical school and uh, (laughs) pre-med didn't have much of a life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) totally understandable. So last question. Have have a life, have a life. Make sure med students have a life, you know, enjoy your life, work out, take care of yourself, you know, really kind of, you know, do those day-to-day activities that will keep you grounded because that is the regimen that, that, that will keep you going in your future so that you don't get sick like I did, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <So>. yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you can make a whole episode just out of that advice right there. We yeah, have a 45 exactly. second episode. That would be very, very <laughs> exactly. uh, helpful to residents. Yeah. All right, so my last question then is something that you're looking forward to. Oh, gosh, I am looking forward to, oh, I uh, have a wedding coming up. So I'm very much so looking forward to that. Your wedding? Uh, yes, my wedding. Oh, yep. congratulations. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So it'll be sometime in April. So I'm excited for that. Um, cool. I'm also, believe it or not, I can't believe that this came up as one of my thoughts, but I'm actually looking forward to taking my board exam and being done with it. <laughs> sure, I'm sure. Yeah. That was really strange. I can't believe that thought came to me, but normally I'd be like, I'm dreading it. But yeah. <laughs> believe it or not, I just want to get it over with. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I've... Yeah. Uh... I've had the opportunity to, to know a lot of doctors. I've dated a couple and, and when they were going through residency and taking their boards and at different stages. And uh, I can tell you, it, not something I envied. Uh, I'm glad that you're going to be able to count that as something that's behind you soon. And for no other reason than I think it will be really great to be able to have, as I said, the thought leadership and the knowledge sharing that you've done today. I think your perspective, your commitment to your patients, be them patients in the past or your future patients, based on all the work that you're doing to get ready for them. I think it's an incredible thing that we all have uh, something good to look forward to, right? So if we ever need uh, your services, I think we can rest assured that, uh, you know, you've put in the work and put in the time and the care. Going back again to what you said, you know, it's a career of service. And it sounds like that's something that you've exemplified. And I think uh, I can speak for everyone listening to say that, you know, wish you all the best on your boards. Congratulations on the wedding for sure. But also, you know, just looking forward to seeing the career success that you have as you build your practice and, um very much looking forward to seeing that. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. I'm sure you're going to be a part of the part of the process and yeah. part of the journey. I, we now we've connected, we've networked, you know, so we're in the same network now. So I'm really excited for for your uh, corporation as well. And, you know, all that you're doing your business, all that you're doing oh, for thank physicians. You. Thank you so much for really yes. wanting to connect us with our ideal jobs. And, you know, once I'm done with fellowship, I'm going to certainly reach out to you if, if not before then, you know, and, and really, yeah. you know, pick your brain and figure out where to go. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm very, very happy to have connected with you. And I, I feel very grateful to have been on the show today. Thank you. And I'd, I'd love to, you know, I'd, I'd love to continue working with you in the future. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. And it's, it's much appreciated. Uh, the feeling is mutual. And uh, I know a lot of recruiters, they're out there emailing you every 15 seconds and texting you. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> right. They show up at your family dinner just to give you a flyer. But <laughs> we don't do that at Provider First. So, um, you know, when you're ready and, and uh, ready to, to do that process, I'm going to be right here waiting for that and would be honored to help with it. And I just want to say uh, thank you so much, not only for those kind words, um, but and for the connection, but also just for being here today, like I said, sharing your thoughts um, giving us a perspective and insight. And I hope anyone who's listening, who's considering uh, following a similar path, who has a passion for psychiatry, for helping people, for having a career of service, um, I hope this episode was as meaningful for you all as it was for me. I want to thank you, Dr. Abakar, for joining us once again. 
Uh, wish you all the best success and thank everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Tyler. You're and I'd be, I'd be happy to um, communicate with any medical student out there. Feel free to email me at empathmedicine uh, at gmail.com. That's E-M-P-A-T-H uh, medicine at, uh, at gmail.com. Great. I will put that in the description as well. I hope everyone has a great day. This and every episode of Prescribing Your Career Success is brought to you by Provider First Recruiting. Provider First isn't just our name, it's our commitment. We believe that by putting the provider first in the hiring process, we guarantee top-tier talent and ultimately make a positive impact on patient care. When providers are the priority in the hiring process, they're able to focus their attention on patient care and on building their practice. Provider First Recruiting is your personal one-on-one -on -one trusted advisor, whether you're hiring world-class providers or looking for your ideal practice experience. Thank you.